So good evening. Um, for whatever reasons, which I haven't spent much too time trying to figure out, for me there's something very grounding about sitting on the cushion to give the talk. As you probably noticed, I sit in the chair all the time, so I will try to gracefully arise at the end of the talk um, as best I can, but uh, pardon my uh, <laughs> whatever happens. <laughs> as I try to do that. Uh, so, second day in, at the end of the second day, and uh, by now, perhaps, I know I heard about some of it in my meetings today, you're starting to become, um, if not aware of, at least cognizant to experiencing various of the hindrances which is what I'm going to give some reflections on this evening. And talking about the hindrances is actually one of my favorite things to do. I was thinking, I, I, I like speaking about the hindrances, I like teaching about Vedana, and I was like, oh, if I was a piano player, I think I'd like the black keys. You know, the ones that um, really give the gravitas to the piece, but aren't so much appreciated in terms of what they can do for themselves. So even though we understand that the hindrances are actually, and working with the hindrances in my thinking and my experiences are one of the major domains of practice, um, sometimes I think they're given short shrift. But when I'm in the meetings and hearing what people are working with and uh, engaged with it oftentimes boils down, the suffering boils down to the non-awareness that, oh, a hindrance is activated here. It's not me. It's actually part of the process, part of the um, activity of practice. And there's a sense that, um, that I have or that one can have in terms of knowing hindrance like to give it a little applause, because if hindrance is happening, you're working. If hindrance is happening and you recognize it, you're working, your practice is active and vibrant. So Stephen Levine says, a hindrance is a blockage to the light of the wisdom mind. It can be simply seen as an obstacle to understanding which attracts the attention, causing identification, and distracts us from an even-minded awareness of the flow. Hindrances are the basis for much compulsive reactivity. So those of you who have sat with me before, maybe even heard a version of this talk, know that oftentimes in my talks, one of the first things that I do is go to the dictionary and look up the word um, of the concept that I'm going to be engaging with as I speak. So I went to the dictionary and I looked up hindrance and what stood out for me as relevant or what I thought was... Uh, good to know is that uh, one of the ways one can understand hindrances as something immaterial that interferes with or delays progress. Hindrance, a difficulty, a factor causing trouble in achieving a result, a barrier, roadblock, any condition that makes it difficult to make progress or to achieve an objective, a hurdle. So kind of sitting in the uh, knowing of um, these various meanings, it's kind of uh, easy to see how it might be beneficial to actually embrace the opportunity to understand and come to know when hindrances are activated in your mind. This verse um, from the Dhammapada that is an overview kind of the teachings in terms of what the Buddhas encourage people to actually do. 
not disparaging others, not causing injury, practicing restraint by the training rules, knowing moderation in food, and I would add sex, sleep, spending money, you know, plug it in, whatever works for you. Dwelling in solitude and pursuing the higher states of mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. So just in these two days, we've been engaged with setting the stage and cultivating the conditions where we can really um, expend our energy in engaging with the intention of coming to see things clearly as they are, not clouded by uh, misunderstanding or any of the five hindrances that I'm going to speak about tonight. So, you know, we took the precepts, we took refuge, and I remember one of the things that Pam said when she uh, had us do the precepts was if you don't remember anything else, if nothing stands out for you from those precepts, remember to do no harm. Whether it's harm to oneself or to another. You know, some of you may be working with knowing moderation in food. It's kind of challenging when it's already prepared for you and it's good and... That spinacopita was really slamming today. <laughs> Eugene, we were in the in the in the diner. Eugene said, "I'm gonna get another. Anybody want anything? I'm going back to the diner. I said, I'll take another piece of spinacopita. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> so really, just in the day to dayness of us being here on retreat, engaging with those subtle aspects of living that even here we get to practice with." So practicing mindfulness, in case you haven't discovered, is easy. But remembering to do so is difficult. And that's what we're wanting to actually um, integrate and metabolize into our nervous system so that remembering to bring mindfulness, to establish mindfulness, becomes just a natural inclination, just like breathing. Not something we have to think about. Yeah? So the hindrances. So by now, most, if not all of us, have come upon many of these forces in the mind which can make it difficult to stay attentive to the present, to the present moment experience. These forces run the gamut from weak to powerful. What we all have experienced to varying degrees is that we are hampered in our ability to remain mindful to develop concentration, and to have clear insight. Our attention is pulled in many directions other than where we wish it to land and interferes with our effort to meditate. Even when we have the best of intentions to stay focused and present, these forces can propel us into states of preoccupation, and distracted thinking. The good news is, these forces and challenges offer an opportunity for the deepening of practice and skill as meditators develops. We're not bad. It's not a personal failing. It's actually part of the process of purification and detoxing. It's a normative part of the practice. And so to turn away or um, uh, anticipate challenge or it's just another of the mind states, like any of the th other thoughts or feelings that we're going to be working with or body uh, states that we're going to be working with over the course of the time, that you can't have a practice without having hindrances. Basically, that's the bottom line of what I'm saying. These forces can serve us by forming the basis for cultivating awareness and wisdom. It is a necessary progression to investigate the forces of distraction and agitation with the utmost care and honor for they lay before us the opportunity to break through the cloud of confusion 
and reactivity of our minds, which we frequently dwell in. We must understand their true nature and how the hindrances work, as it is much easier to find freedom from something when we know it thoroughly. Much easier to find freedom when we know it thoroughly. When the hindrances are seen clearly for what they are, and the sooner these states are recognized and acknowledged as they form in the mind, the sooner they can be let go of and the less power they have to reel us into the drama and dismay of identification with it. If we know we are angry, agitated, doubtful, clinging, or experiencing whatever hindrance is visiting at the time, we can, without judgment, without aversion for that aversion, turn towards the experience and open the mind around it with a spaciousness that awareness offers and break the identification with it. Although there can be numerous hindrances, there are five traditionally identified as particularly important for those of us taking this particular journey of Buddhist practice of mindfulness and meditation. Sooner or later, all meditators will have to address the hindrances. Oftentimes, it's sooner and later because of how frequently they occur and there's no promise that the maturity or depth of practice somehow dispels hindrances forever. There's always another layer. These obstructing mind states should not be viewed as unfortunate occurrences, but rather as an opportunity to strengthen mindfulness, concentration, understanding, and non-clinging. Without a dedication to working with the hindrances, practice, one can be derailed from one's practice. It's actually a really, really rich training ground to engage with the hindrances. And, you know, I was thinking that um, those, those folks, those athletes who um, become masters at the master level in their sports, or musicians, you could say this about musicians too, um, those, those Olympians, I, I'm thinking that part of how that comes into existence is that those folks are not afraid to train in the difficult places. You know, I don't remember if it was, and I know this is old school, but I don't, I don't remember if it was Michael Jordan or which one of the, his colleagues from that time in basketball that, who was one of the people who were at, at the pinnacle like, you know, had a masterful career. Even at that level, he spoke about his need to practice four or five hours a day to sustain and maintain that level of accuracy and output. I think it's much the same for us. I guess you warriors fans would say that's what Curry does too. I don't know, (laughs) being the New Yorker that I am. The thing about hindrances is that they direct attention outwards and therefore makes it difficult to recognize itself. Without awareness of what is happening, it becomes difficult to assist the purification process for letting go or letting be. These are the five hindrances or workings of the mind that can hinder our ability to see clearly and our capacity to develop a stable, concentrated mind. So the first one, and you know, um, as, as you've come to understand and know in Buddhism, there are just there's so many lists. And it's not so much that the Buddha, I think, was particularly linear <laughs> um, in his teaching or, or, or his understanding, but um, it's because it was easier to memorize. For, for Ananda and all the folks who traveled with him, it was easier to remember, to remember it by having it in lists. So that's what we're left with. Um, maybe it can do the same for us. I don't know. 
So these five hindrances, the first one being sensual desire or greed or uh, the mind wanting something pleasurable, grasping after sense objects. Greed is often the desire for pleasant states, for more, for quicker. It keeps the mind looking outward, searching after this object or that in an agitated and unbalanced way. And then there's desire for certain subtler states of mind or peak experience or grasping after complementary self-image, something that might sound like, oh, I was a good meditator today. (laughs) Or greed for understanding. You know, I'm, I'm a proponent and I know it's really helpful. And I know it's the linchpin of education in the United States. But this inclination towards questioning, 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 oftentimes moves us away from the exploration of the direct experience from which knowing arises. Right? So this greed for understanding, we're big time on that in the United States. So just to notice that, how we can get inculcated into the conditions of the environment, um, whether we ask to or not. Sensual desire can be for food, comfort, physical and sexual experiences, sounds, smells, sights, and other sense pleasures. It is the very nature of sense desires that there is never satisfaction. There is no end to the seeking. Living without wants, wishes, motivations, or aspirations is impossible. It's actually these ways of being that keep us moving forward through life. However, coming to know what is skillful, we need to do our due diligence without being entrapped in the unskillful ways of engaging with desire. To approach freedom, we must emphasize skillful desires and distinguish the healthy, useful desires from the unhealthy ones. We become wise about harmful desires and understand the more we value freedom and its pleasure, the more likely freedom guides us in deciding which desires or aspirations we allow to guide our lives. I, I, I um, told this short story in my meeting today, so you know who you are. I warned you. I might tell it again, so you'll have to hear it again. So I was at IMS, and um, it must have been a spring retreat because the flowers were blooming, the birds were singing, the sky was blue, the sun was shining. And I think it must have been the sixth week, so I was really in the retreat. And there was a moment where I walked out of one of the dorms, and before me was, uh, was a whole bunch of tiger lilies. Tiger lilies are those orange flowers that are, are late spring flowers. And there was one in particular which was just bursting with self-expression. It was like at the pinnacle of its beauty. And I was mesmerized, you know, because I'm in that nature connection thing and no hindrances really happening, you know. And I'm like just communing with the flower and filled with joy and love and happiness. And then the thought entered my mind, oh, let me go get my camera. so I can hold on to this beautiful experience that I'm having. Took me less than a minute to go get my phone. We didn't have a phone ceremony that retreat. (laughs) Less than a moment to go get my phone, running back, make sure I got this picture because I wanted to hold this. In just that minute, the moment had passed. And I missed the culminating experience of the expression of this flower. 
And it wasn't until I was actually getting this talk together that I realized that, oh, like ever since then, I don't really take pictures anymore. You know, because somewhere there was clarity about not wanting to miss the moment of the direct experience. It doesn't say I never take pictures, but I'm really um, um, mindful of when I go and, 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 and take that picture. So, you know, here's an example of a really actual, beautiful, wonderful experience that was happening. Um, a mind that was pretty gathered and settled, you know. Not awareness of any major hindrances operating. And then clinging arose. And that's how fast it happens, you know. So this constant cultivation of the capacity to know how things are. Because in that moment, when the thought entered, go get the camera, I could have said no. If in that moment, my mindfulness had been strong. So remember the tiger lily as you walk around. So this is one of the predominant energies that can be noticed in the mind. This energy of grasping at objects. A thirst for experience. We must dance lightly with our desires and we need to know that we are dancing. Then there's ill will or aversion. The mind is filled with dislike, the condemning mind, anger, fury, resentment, hatred, annoyance, aversion, irritation, vexation, loathing, spite, resistance, avoidance, criticalness, boredom, complaining, grudge, fearfulness. Oh, did you feel the energy shift? (laughs) Yeah? So feeling that in the body. Like these very, and I'm sure there's more, I'm sure the list goes on and on. These various iterations and states of aversion. It is the mind that strikes against the object and wants to get rid of it. Wisdom is acquired through familiarity and one of the tasks in mindfulness practice is to become familiar with the hindrances, to know the hindrances, to understand the hindrances and how they feel in the body, how they come into existence and how they resolve and how it is when they're not there. With ill will, this requires a willingness to shift attention away from whatever we are hostile towards and instead turn it towards the experience of the ill will itself. So if there's a person or an experience or a condition that's uh, uh, causing or stimulating the arising of aversion, Oftentimes, I think, mistakenly, we turn our attention to that object where the actuality is in terms of where the juice is in terms of the practice is to turn the attention towards the experience of ill will. That's where the learning is. That's where the wisdom is. And there's also something about turning towards the experience of ill will itself and not the object, which is self-empowering. Because when we're fixated or engaged with the condition or the person or the object or the experience that's stimulating or triggering the ill will, we actually are very disempowered. You know, in, in, in a way, it's, it's, you know, I know this might be a strong way to think about it, but this is how I think about it. And I've said this in this hall before. I maybe, you know, partly because of the ancestral history that I come from, but I don't want to be enslaved by anything or anybody, particularly my mind. So you can check that out for yourself. See if that resonates for you. See if there's this understanding and there, this, this engagement with knowing and feeling, feeling when you're empowered and feeling when you're not empowered in the body. It can be useful to be mindful of it 
in a non-judgmental and non-reactive way. So we have a really great, great training ground for that these days. It can be helpful to hold the ill will in our focus without acting on it or pushing it away, being mindful of how ill will feels physically. Examine the beliefs that underlie the ill will. How do we believe aversion will be beneficial or justified? What assumptions do we believe about how things are supposed to be? What might ill will be covering? Frustrated desire? Fear? Embarrassment? With no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. So then there's sloth and torpor. Been hearing a lot about that in the meetings. Although on the second day, I'm like, maybe you're tired. (laughs) You know, if it was day seven and you were bringing that in here, I might have something to say about it. But like, go take a nap. You know, go sit down, let the body relax, you know. Um, I think nowadays uh, people come in, and maybe it's always been this way, you know, just different circumstances, different details. But there's something about the immediacy of input today that these bodies come in like whipped, you know, and we don't even know it really a lot of times. And it's just regular living. It's not even like that extra something that might come into existence in your life. Just making it through the day, every day, these days, with the phones, the computers, the iPads, the mini iPads. What are, I don't even know what that, Facebook, Twitter, chat. Like I'm not on any of that, so hope I said it right. But you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so sloth and torpor, the mind is sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly, sluggish, laziness of mind, a mind that is heavy or dull. Sloth and torpor can arise from the absence of desire and aversion. So that's interesting to just take a look at that. Like, is there this constant ping-ponging back and forth between an overabundance of energy and an underabundance of energy. Like if there's not the drama, if there's not the entertainment, if there's not the peak experience, then is the other response to that dullness and fatigue? That's something interesting to explore. The lack of stimulation that accompanies constant desire and aversion can be deflating and even depressing. Sloth and torpor are forces in the mind that drain vitality and limit effort. Sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, or weak. When this hindrance is strong, there is not even enough mindfulness to know we have fallen into it. Sloth and torpor refers to low-energy states related to an attitude we are oftentimes holding. Discouragement, frustration, boredom, indifference, giving up, hopelessness, and resistance are some of the mind states that give rise to sloth and torpor. Although sloth and torpor may be present, it does not mean energy is not available, but just that we're not accessing it. Our evaluations, judgments, and reactions lead to lethargy. A good measure of that, I know for me, is I'll I'll feel tired or sleepy or dull, sitting, walking. Okay, I'll go take a nap. And the minute my head hits the pillow, I'm wide awake, <laughs> alert, mind busy, you know. So that's one of the ways to measure or engage really what the condition is that's present, you know. And then sometimes my head hits the pillow, um, 
like yesterday, and I'm, I'm out for three hours, giving space to this mind-body to do some processing that it needed to do in terms of coming into this retreat. Then there's restlessness and worry. The mind is too anxious to stay steady. Regret, agitation, jumping from one object to another without any mindfulness. A state of over-excitement. What are the causes and conditions that give rise to restlessness? Cultivating contentment can be a calming activity for restlessness. Learning to breathe through restlessness. It's also really important, and I'd say this is true, not even though I have, I'm, I'm speaking to it in relationship to restlessness and worry, I would say this is true in general for the hindrances and also true in general for practice. It's important to have enough exercise, sleep, good nutrition, because lack thereof can encourage restlessness. Sometimes it's not that deep. Sometimes it's about, are you taking care of yourself? You know, are you running the energy to E and then not replenishing and restoring? How might we expect to engage with some of the challenges and difficulties and even the joy and sweetness of this practice if we're depleted and under-restored? It can be useful to cultivate contentment, breathe through the restlessness, releasing tension or constriction by breathing can be relaxing. The more attention given to breathing, the less attention is available to fuel restlessness and worry. Dissatisfaction, frustrated desire, and pent-up aversion are common causes of agitation. Being mindful of the cause is helpful and not the agitation. So that's the same thing that I'm pointing to that I spoke about in relationship to the previous hindrances that I spoke to. When pain, physical or emotional, is the cause of the restlessness, the pain should be addressed. So I remember saying this in, in one of the meetings this, this morning that this practice is not about learning how to tolerate more suffering. You know? It's really about moving towards the freedom from suffering. And you don't get to freedom from suffering by powering through, by not being kind to the body, heart, mind that's sitting there on the cushions. So be mindful, be mindful of taking care and addressing pain. And it doesn't mean, um, well, sometimes it does mean um, fully disengaging or withdrawing, you know? Sometimes it does mean that. But more times than not, it just may mean backing off a bit and then moving in again. Backing off, moving in. As you cultivate capacity for more and more engagement with what is difficult. So then lastly, there's doubt. Perhaps the most powerful of the hindrances is doubt. Not because it's more difficult to know or see or because it is more intense or encompassing than any of the others can be, but because doubt can stop practice. Skeptical doubt, a lack of faith that we can stay mindful of what is true and to act skillfully. We might consider a little doubt as helpful to move us towards being motivated for a deeper investigation of what we have been conditioned to believe is true. But sometimes, 
Doubt can close the mind. We can doubt that the method we have chosen can take us through and deliver us to awakening. We doubt our ability to understand. We may even doubt that freedom actually exists. When doubt predominates, there can be an ability, a non-ability to continue moving forward and practicing and working with ourselves and our minds. We feel sorry for ourselves or whatever your particular flavor of self-doubt might be. And we mistrust the universe. Doubt can also be so subtle we don't recognize it. When we can see the moment of doubt as just another bubble of mind arising and passing away, it can free us from much of the confusion and tension in our lives. Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts our ability to cope with all the other hindrances. What am I doing here? Why did I come? I can't do this. It's too hard. Doubt distances us from the present moment, so bringing mindfulness can be helpful in shifting from doubt. And those doubt attacks, they can just sneak up on you. Like I had one yesterday, that's why I slept for three hours. Because I need to work it out. You know, and it, it, th- this doubt came from a place that I've done a lot of work behind. You know, I've been at this for 20 years or so. did a lot of work behind it. And I know that one of my grooves is in relationship to what I perceive, whether it's true or not, white authority. And I had an interaction yesterday where that groove got kicked up. And I was quietly pissed. And not only is this groove in relationship to white authority or perceived white authority, but there's also an aspect of it. So the, the pissed was the aversion, but the doubt was you know, I, I just really, I don't need this. <laughs> I don't want this. I can't do this. But the, the thing about this, and you're going to, so you know I talked about taking refuge back, how long ago was it? Two days. Two days. Two days ago I talked about taking refuge. And what I know is that when I can't hold the faith, when I can't hold the gold, when I can't hold the truth of the matter for what I'm here for, I take refuge. Refuge in the Buddha. Refuge in the Dhamma. And refuge in the Sangha. And so I enlisted Sangha yesterday to work with some things. And I had a talk with the man and I allowed Sangha to hold me. And through that engagement of wisdom of knowing where to go when I was caught in this state, was able to move through and the sleeping was about metabolization and integration. So sleep is not always sloth and torpor, it's actually sometimes restorative and nourishing. Although there are these seven factors, these seven hindrances, because four of them are paired. Gil Fronsdale suggests that one explanation for this pairing is that the energies represent closely related physical and mental factors. The first two hindrances are related by being opposite qualities, desire and ill will. They are both forms of wanting, although opposite sides of the same coin. Desire seeks to have something, whereas ill will wants to push something away. 
In a similar way, the third and fourth hindrances are related by being opposite qualities. They both relate to or involve levels of energy or vitality. Sloth and torpor are low energy states, while restlessness and worry are high energy states. The fifth hindrance, doubt, though not specifically connected to any one of the others, oftentimes is entwined with any combination of the other hindrances and can and does cast its influence in many ways on our whole being. (coughs) When the hindrances are strong, we lose our ability to see clearly. These hindrances cloud our mind and prevent us from knowing the cause of our suffering. The hindrances are not only present in meditation, but actually permeate our daily lives to varying degrees. They can cast a powerful influence on our lives. The Buddha taught that our minds are usually clouded with one or more of the hindrances. But because this is such a normal experience, we hardly notice it. He also said that the mind's natural state is clear, luminous, and free of any hindrances. Mindfulness practice returns the mind to this free state. So in Joseph Goldstein's mindfulness book, um, he speaks of two similes. Um, One of them I'm going to read to you. This first simile that the Buddha uses to describe how the hindrances impact the mind in different ways and obscure our perception uses the example of a pool of clear water that reflects our image. When sense desire is present in the mind, it is as if the pool were suffused with a colored dye. Desires color our perceptions. When aversion is present, it is like boiling water. We can't see clearly. When we're heated up by anger, we're in a state of turbulence. Sloth and torpor are like the pool overgrown with algae. There is a stagnation of mind that prevents us from seeing clearly. Restlessness and worry are like water when it is stirred up by the wind. The mind is tossed about by agitation. And doubt is like muddy water where we can't see to the bottom and everything is obscured. That's a nice visual for those of us who are visual people and take in information that way. When the mind is not obscured by hindrances, attachment doesn't arise. And when one's mind is willing and able to be with what is, one is not caught in wanting anything, wanting to become anything, or wanting to get rid of anything. Although it is probable that this state has shown up many times in life. If we are unaware and not mindful when it is occurring, the impact is minimal. In those moments in which our mind is free from hindrances, we are not in a reactive state. We are seeing things more clearly and have access to intuitive wisdom. So what I'd like to um, give you kind of as a last piece around this is um, some wisdom from Gil Fronsdale. He offers us a way to take the hindrances into our mindfulness practice, which consists of five different aspects. One or two of you may have heard this before, but... You can't hear it too many times. 
The acronym for this tool is BELLA. B as in boy, ELLA, E-L-L-A, B-E-L-L-A, which translates into English as beautiful. He says the acronym describes the mind that is revealed when the hindrances are overcome and mindfulness becomes strong. Bella, B. When a hindrance appears, it is useful to first just let it be, not acting on it or reacting to it. When I find myself in times of trouble, Quan Yin comes to me, <laughs> speaking words of wisdom. Let it be, let it be. There you go. <laughs> it is the training in staying present for our experience without being in conflict with it. No need to be discouraged, angry, or self-critical when faced with a hindrance. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding an inner stability in the face of destabilizing forces. Letting it be involves recognizing and acknowledging the hindrance. The clearer the recognition and mindfulness, the more we pull ourselves out of the web of confusion and non-clear seeing. This brings great freedom. Recognition also ensures our practice stays honest and realistic. Bella, examine. This is said to be the most important aspect of our practice with the hindrance. Exploring the hindrances involves recognizing the components, its physical, energetic, cognitive, and motivational aspects. For example, if we take sense desire and deconstruct it physically, it may be experienced as a leaning forward, a tightening of the solar plexus, or a sense of lightness. Energetically, it may involve pressure, a sense of restlessness, or an upsurging of vitality. Emotionally, sense desire may invoke pleasant emotions like delight, excitement, or eagerness. Cognitively, sense desire may involve beliefs and in stories we tell ourselves. And motivationally, sense desire may come as a strong impulse to act or cling or fix. Learning how hindrances arise, how they are removed, and how they can be prevented from arising requires attention and discernment. Bella, lessen. Lessen its strength. Relaxing both the body and mind are good ways to lessen the intensity of strong bouts with a hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power might require removing yourself from the situation that reinforces it or direct one's attentions to something that has a calming effect for you. Bella, let go. Once we understand a hindrance, it can be appropriate to let go of it. For example, letting go of the thinking that perpetuates the hindrance. This ability to let go of the hindrance increases with practice. Letting go is like a muscle which grows stronger with practice and time. Bella, appreciate. When a hindrance is no longer present, it is useful to take time to experience its absence, to be mindful and present without being hijacked by a hindrance is a joy. Relief that arises when the mind is free of hindrances is a delight.
unhindered attention is a treasure. Bella, be, examine, lesson, let go, appreciation. In closing, when awareness of the hindrances is keen and we know what is going on as it is occurring and the states of mind that used to overcome us become reflective of our growth in the practice and in awareness. As the hindrances arise, they set off a signal in the mind which causes us to wake up and then supports us to investigate the disturbance. They are a reminder of how easily we get lost and how awareness keeps our lives simple and uncomplicated. Mindfulness is a powerful means for cutting through any of the hindrances. We can sit with any of them and rather than blocking or impeding, or our meditation, they can become the object of investigation. We can simply, gently, keenly observe this particular activity of the mind. Let the practice release your heart from fear. Let the quieting of your mind and the clear seeing of the truth release you from confusion and clinging. Let understanding and acceptance of the way things are in this moment flower the fruit of wisdom. Thank you for your attention and your listening. Let's sit for a moment. Have a good enough night of practice and rest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.